Acts chapter 4 and chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, please take it and turn there. Uh, we're going to start at the end of chapter 4. As we've seen over the past few months, the Spirit of God uh, had been moving in very unprecedented ways among the apostles. And the early church uh, had formed with 120 disciples in Acts chapter 1 and then very quickly expanded and exploded by the thousands as people got saved in Acts 2 and Acts 3. And they heard the gospel and gave their hearts to Christ. And, and out of Pentecost, uh, with all the signs and wonders that were taking place there, and the healing of the beggar, and then the second sermon that we studied a couple weeks ago, and Peter and John's arrest, even with all of that, everything was going very, very well. Tens of thousands of people were hearing the gospel in their own language. They were hearing that God does forgive sins, and that when we sin, uh, when we confess our sin and trust in Christ, that lives are transformed. And they were seeing living proof of that every single day as the church added to its people daily. And not only was this movement in Jerusalem and Judea, but now as people went back to their own countries, having heard the gospel in their own language, now they were communicating it throughout the world. And Jesus had said that would happen. He had said in Acts 1.8, you're going to go into all the world and preach the gospel. He had commissioned them in Matthew 28 to go out and make disciples, and that's exactly what was going on. And because of that, rather than the timidity and fear and, and, and ineffective hesitation that had characterized the apostles for three years, now we are seeing them be a full of joy and power, and healing is continuing to take place even uh, after Jesus is gone, and, and, and there's a new hunger for the Lord. There's a new dependency on the Lord. The apostles were praying like they had never prayed before. They finally understood what Jesus had been talking about, what Jesus had modeled. And they sought the Lord, and they waited for the Holy Spirit. And as the Holy Spirit led them, they moved forward boldly and confidently. As we've seen a couple times, they were unified. They were sacrificial beyond what we have ever seen before. And they shared to the extent that it was spontaneous. It was uh, willingly sacrificial. Nobody had to say, you need to do this, or this is part of your obligation. Nobody gave them a guilt trip. It, it was just pure, unbridled love for each other. And their prayer was intense, and their ministry was bold, and their worship was pure, and their witness was influential. They had unlimited power. They had unusual courage, and they had unprecedented results that were taking place. Now, how many of us know that as soon as those kinds of things happen, the devil wants to move in to quickly try to crush it? And as all this is going on, and as the power of God is working, the enemy moves in. I heard my father say in a sermon uh, recently that the strength of an idea is usually the opposition to it. And that's exactly what we see here in Acts chapter 5. As the church thrives... As the gospel goes out, as people's lives are changed, as their enemies become weaker and, 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 and less emboldened to challenge them because they know the strength of the power of the gospel. And as they break down the religious traditions and the presuppositions that were incorrect and in the, in the secular uh, thinking of these religious people who are actually very, very carnal, we see that the idea advances but as it advances, the enemy comes in and tries to disrupt it because he hates the work of the Lord. 
as we do the work of the Lord as a church, the enemy is going to hate it, and he's going to oppose it. And he's going to look to disrupt it, and he's going to try to divide God's church. And he does it in two different ways. He attacks us personally. He tries to dissuade us from trusting in the Lord and putting our confidence in the Lord. And then second, he goes after the soft underbelly of the church. Any place where he can find spiritual vulnerability and spiritual immaturity, especially in terms of, uh, of a weakened theology or a tolerance of sin or a selfish attitude or some kind of relational rub that's there that, that he can then attack and drive a wedge into and figure out a way that he can undermine what's going on. And we've seen such wonderful results, but when we get to the start of Acts chapter 5, we see this awful, tragic illustration of selfishness that has a great effect on the church. Look at it starting at the end of chapter 4 and verse 36. It says, Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is an extension of what we read in the section before about how the believers were all giving voluntarily and were bringing the money to the apostles. Now we get to chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. Everything is good so far. But he kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you've conceived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval about three hours, and his wife came in not knowing what had happened, and Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. And Peter said to her, Why is it that you've agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they'll carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. Now the Spirit sets up a contrast between the voluntary sacrifice of the body, if you look back in verses 32 to 35 of chapter 4, where people are bringing money to the apostles and they're distributing it to the body because everything in Acts is church-centered. So they're bringing it to the apostles. The apostles have the wisdom to discretionarily distribute that to the people who have need. And then we get to the details of one man in particular who we'll also see throughout the epistles, a man named Joseph. Joseph was a Levite. He was of the priestly tribe, and he had lived in Cyprus. And apparently he had been blessed of God uh, on this little island in the Mediterranean, and he had had a tract of land, and he sold it. And it's not accidental that he's the one that the Spirit of God mentions. That's not just a side note for our amusement. It, there, it sets up a very profound contrast 
between who he was and who Ananias and Sapphira were. Because uh, Barnabas' name in the Hebrew means son of encouragement. What's important is that he is doing something that's going to stand in sharp contrast to what's about to happen. Because his gift, his voluntarily sacrificial gift, is a blessing and encouragement to the church because he gives it with a pure heart and he gives it wholeheartedly. And Ananias and Sapphira seem to do something that's the same and yet their gift is going to be a discouragement to the body. Now as I'm studying and reading this week, the Spirit really impressed that distinction on my heart and I think it's important for each of us to to be introspective and to honestly assess in our hearts Am I an encouragement or a discouragement to the body? Does what I say build people up and strengthen them, or does it dampen their enthusiasm for the Lord? Do I live and act in such a way that my love for the Lord is so obvious and it it strengthens people and they're more uh, in love with Christ too? Or does it make people skeptical about Christians and say, well, you don't look any different, and and I don't really want to be part of that ministry if that's the way you're going to be? Does your faith and does my faith inspire people to say, well, if you can trust the Lord, then I can trust the Lord and and I'm going to trust Him deeply? Or or does our lack of faith cause them to question Him? When we worship, does it show our passion and our love for God or does it communicate inhibition? Do people look at us worshiping? And I'm not just talking singing a service. I'm talking how we live and how we praise God. Does it... Does it strengthen them or does it show a sign of of lack of spiritual vitality? When we pray, when somebody overhears us praying, does it reflect a close relationship to the Lord? Does it show an openness? Lord, you're you're my Savior. You've opened up the access. I come to you boldly as your child and I praise you and I bring my request. Do they see that or do they see our prayer as kind of detached and perfunctory? See, these are all the things that we have to evaluate in terms of how we live and what we communicate. Even though we don't know about many details about Barnabas at this point, we'll know about him more later when he starts to travel with Paul and then he starts to visit churches throughout Asia Minor and just goes to encourage them. We can already see the integrity of his life. and Look at how it contrasts to Ananias and Sapphira. He gives freely. He gives out of the joy of his heart. He gives out of love for the Lord. That's the best kind of giving. In fact, it's the only kind of giving. Giving is never begrudging. It's never, okay, well, that's a plate's coming. I, I guess I better put something in. Giving our lives, giving our time, giving our sacrifice should never be, I can't believe I've got to do this, but I know this is part of the obligation of being in the church. Giving should always be with a joyful heart. It should always be, oh Lord, you've done so much to me and I praise you. And sacrifice, absolutely, your son sacrificed for me. I'll give you anything you need. It's all yours anyway. My time, my money, everything I have, it's yours. Now don't get distracted as we move into the next section But the thought continues. Don't don't let the chapter break there, which is not natural, affect you because the thought continues. Barnabas comes. He brings the money. He lays it at the apostles' feet. 
look at the next word, but. First time it's used in the book of Acts. The first time the Spirit says, "Mm -mm, something's not right here. The Spirit's been outpouring in His work, and the apostles have been dependent, and now we have this terrible intrusion into the peace of the Spirit-filled church. What a difference one person can make, either positively or negatively. Here you have this couple, Ananias, whose name means God has been faithful. Sapphira, whose name means beautiful. They're well known in the church. Apparently they had some wealth. They had a substantial gift they're bringing to the feet of the disciples, just like everybody else is doing. But this one's not quite right. Because as we see in the text, Ananias was being deceptive. And the implication is crystal clear from the text that he made a show of the gift and that he presented it as the full amount But it wasn't the full amount. And I want you to see in verse 2 that that was not accidental. This was not just as they're bringing the gift, you know, that's way too much. And and kind of get caught up in the emotion in a minute and kind of panicked and said, you know what, Pull, pull 100 out of the envelope because we can't give that much. This was not a spur of the moment decision. They did this because they wanted to keep some of it for themselves. The intent was not, you know, we're really struggling financially, and and if we give that much, we're going to have a desperate need, so we better pull back a little bit. That's not what's going on. The text tells us that it was unadulterated greed to be selfish and to withhold something from the Lord and from the church. It was an intentional, willful act that they had privately discussed and plotted in their personal conversations at home. It says in the text that Ananias did this with his wife's full knowledge. In other words, they sat down and they determined in their hearts, all right, not only are we not going to give the whole amount of this gift, but when we go to take it to the apostles, we're going to say it is the whole amount. And this is going to be a conscious deception to the church family and to the Lord. Now, it's important to see that they were under no obligation to give the whole amount. If they had come and said, you know, we sold a piece of land and it was worth X amount of dollars and we decided to set some money aside uh, for giving later or for ministry or for our family or whatever the case may be, they didn't even have to justify it. We've sold a piece of land, we've set some aside, and we're bringing the rest to you as our offering to the Lord. Nobody would have said a word, and we wouldn't have probably known anything about them. The problem was that they misrepresented this public gift and said it was something that it wasn't. And even more significant is the way that they brought it. Because in the Greek language, it seems to indicate that it was a special gift. In other words, that the church took note that it was that large an amount that the church kind of said, ooh, wow. That's, that's amazing. What you guys did is amazing. That there was, there was emphasis here that this couple was bringing this gift. So this was not secret. It, it was not private. What only exacerbated the fact was that they had gotten greedy and held some back, but then they wanted the attention that they didn't deserve. In fact, they didn't deserve any attention. When we give, we don't give saying, okay, offering time. What's everybody got today? 
But wouldn't that be uncomfortable, would it? All right, what you got? I got 100. Who can match 100? It's like an auction. Can you imagine giving that way? Why wouldn't we do that? Because it's not about drawing attention to ourselves, right? It's not about saying, hey, look at me. I got my money now. I'm going to give this much. You're not giving that much. Look at how much I'm sacrificing. That would be an offense to God. The Bible says when you give sacrificially, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Don't draw attention to yourself. This is why the widow's might was favored over all the guys that walked in with the robes and said, we are presenting a gift to the church. Now, notice us. And the little widow's in the corner, and she's got her little, little, tiny, tiny, tiny bit of money that she's scrimped and sacrificed. And she's over there, and nobody notices her, and she's putting it in, and Jesus says, there, right there, that's sacrifice. She's not doing it to be prominent. She's only doing it out of her heart. Her heart is pure. 2 Corinthians 9 says that everyone must give as they've purposed in their heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. Listen, it's all His. Everything you have in your bank account this morning is His. Every good and perfect gift comes from where? Above. I don't have any money of my own. It's all God's. My house is God's. My cars are God's. My possession are God's. My job is God's. It's not mine. It's His. Now we talk about giving And we rarely talk about giving. The Old Testament talks about the tithe, which, by the way, was not 10%. It was more like 35% when all was said and done. The New Testament doesn't teach about tithing. When Jesus speaks about giving, he doesn't speak about percentages. He speaks about giving out of love for God. And if every believer gave, if I gave how much I love God, or, or let's say how much I should love God, for who he is and what he's done. There is not a church in this world that would ever have a budget issue. No pastor would ever have to teach about giving. I hope, honestly, that I don't ever have to teach about giving other than what I need to do just to educate you on the word of God. But I hope I never have to stand in this pulpit and say, oh, please, you've got to give. What I will teach you is how to love the Lord. And when we love the Lord, listen now, giving will follow. Churches have gotten away from talking about loving the Lord and saying, you've got to give, come on, come on, everybody now, everybody, reach deep. I hope I never have to say that because we love the Lord so much that we say, of course we're going to give. Ananias and Sapphira didn't, didn't have that in their hearts. They sat at the kitchen table and they got a calculator and they determined that they would only give part, but they would say it was all. When we start to calculate sacrifice, we will diminish sacrifice. In fact, it'll stop being sacrifice. And it's not just what we give. I don't want you to think this is an offering about money, a sermon about money. 
It, it applies to how we give our time and how we serve and how we minister. If we're complaining or we're drawing attention to ourselves or we're feeling frustrated that we have to give our time and energy to serve the church or to serve the Lord, then we're doing exactly what Ananias and Sapphira did. We're acting like our heart's sincere. Oh, yeah, I'm glad to serve. But inside, we're really lying and saying, I don't want to do this. And why did they lie? Why, why do we lie about this and other things? Well, there are a lot of reasons why we lie, aren't there? There's fear. There, there is trying to get an edge on somebody, trying to make yourself look good and make them look bad. So you twist the truth a little bit so that they'll look worse. Or we're jealous. We lie about somebody to, to damage them and pers- promote ourselves. Or, or we're greedy or we're devious or we're, we're ignorant. We don't know what the truth is, so I'll just make something up and maybe that'll sound good and maybe I'll sound like an authority. We don't know why they lied. We don't sense that there's a financial need. Maybe they just felt like they were better than everybody else. Maybe they didn't feel like they had to follow the rules, that they were different. Well, everybody else, look at those saps giving all their money. We better do something because we're part of the church. But you know what? That land we sold was worth way too much. We're not going to give all of that. No way. Maybe they had a distrust of the apostles. Maybe they didn't like how they were leading. There's always something. But we do know that they lied. And lies always cause damage. Lying is one of the devil's favorite tools. It's why he is absolutely the antithesis to Jesus Christ, who is called the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus Christ is truth. God's word is truth. John 17, 17. And the devil loves to lie. It's one of his two main jobs, to lie and to accuse. So where there's lying, the devil's behind it. And Ananias and Sapphira lied. This gift was not pure, it had no good intent, it was not honoring to God. Even though they made a show and brought it to the disciples' feet, like all the other people were doing, and like Barnabas had done, and and they come in, and here's Ananias and Sapphira, they're doing their part. Look at that, wow, that's wonderful, what an amazing gift. Look at that huge gift. And they lay at the apostles' feet, and everything looks great. Peter, look at it, oh, this is so beautiful in the text. Peter, in verse 3, has instant spiritual discernment. It was a unique gift of the Lord, the characteristics of the leaders of the early church, because they lived under the direction of the Holy Spirit. And notice what he tells Ananias at the end of verse 4. He says, you have not lied to men, you have lied to God. You see, ultimately, our words and our actions are toward the Lord, and not toward the church. I want you to listen very carefully now. Any of us can come in here, and we can pull off some kind of lie, and we can act sincere when we really aren't, and we can twist the truth, and we can present an image of ourselves that that isn't right, and the congregation will feel the effects of that, and will ultimately be hurt and diminished if that happens. Just in the same way, someone can come in here and they can show great love for the Lord out of a sincere heart and they can praise God and they can serve the church and the net effect of that will be to bless us. But the bottom line is that whatever we do, good or bad, it's not to the church, it's unto the Lord. If you serve in this body, you don't serve Harbor Rock Tabernacle, you serve the Lord. 
if you hurt this body, you don't hurt Harbor Rock Tabernacle, you hurt the Lord. Everything we do is a reflection on the Lord. This is a very important spiritual principle I want you to get here, is that whether you're serving or singing or teaching a class or ushering or changing diapers or setting up or tearing down, and I'm so appreciative of those that set up and tear down every week, that's just the hidden ministry that we need to appreciate. Whether you're preaching like I am this morning, whatever it is, what we say and what we do will affect everyone and everything around us. The church, the body, and our ministry. And more importantly, it's not only a reflection of what's in our heart, it's also a statement of whether we love the Lord or not. That's why Ananias and Sapphira are such a stain on the early church. They have every opportunity to continue in the ministry of what the Lord's been doing. If this gift had been pure and huge and sacrificial and sincere, how much it would have blessed the church, how much it would have continued the push of the ministry, how much it would have advanced the gospel because of their sacrifice and their love for the Lord. But when their self-interest creeps in and they start to do things to be noticed, and this applies to us, and when we shortcut our devotion to the Lord for some sort of weird self-satisfaction, the damage is incredibly great. Peter says to them, why did you do this? Why are you lying? Why are you holding back? Why are you offending the Holy Spirit like this? This is the first time that we see someone's sin as being listed against the Holy Spirit. And I don't want you to miss the first part of his name. He is the Holy Spirit. This is an offense against God's holiness. He is the standard of perfection as the Spirit of God who somehow indwells us. I will never understand it because I know how impure I am. But the Holy Spirit of God indwells us and He is the standard of perfection to which we are accountable and to which we are transformed. So twice in verses 3 and 4, Peter says to Ananias, why have you done this to the Holy Spirit? Why have you allowed your heart to be corrupted? You let Satan enter in and you conceive this awful plot to lie to the Holy Spirit. What caused you, Ananias, to fill your heart with such unholiness? You see, they thought they were going to fool everybody with their little plan. They sat at their table. They weighed the price. They decided they didn't want to give all the price, which would have been fine. But then they lied about it. They said, this is everything. They made a show of it. And they lied to the church and they lied to God. And while they thought as they brought the sacrifice in that they would fool everybody else, they forgot that God looks not on the outward appearance. God looks on the what? Tell me. On the heart. God looked internally. And I believe we have to be careful not to lose the awe that God is holy and not to forget that God is constantly evaluating the condition of our heart against His holiness. So let me ask you this morning, what's in your heart? Proverbs 23 says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So what's your heart filled with this morning? Are you full of bitterness and resentment? Are you full of fear and doubt and worry? 
Are, are you frustrated? Are, are, are you offended? Are you full of deceit and sin? See, God's interested in the intentions of your heart. He doesn't care what you're wearing this morning. He doesn't care how nice your hair looks, what your makeup looks like, what kind of clothes you have on, what kind of purse you're carrying, what kind of Bible's in your hands. That doesn't matter to him in the long run. What matters to him is what's in your heart. So what's your purpose? What, what's the reason you're alive this morning? What's your goal out of life, especially as it relates to eternity? Because our actions now can have such a dramatic impact on the rest of our lives. And don't assume maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, well, Paul, come on, I'll get it straight later in life. Or, or I'll wait till God kind of takes me through some crisis that, 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 you know, once I live a little bit and kind of get it out of my system, then I'll, then I'll turn to the Lord and I'll get my heart right. Listen, you don't know when the clock is up. You don't know when the days are done of your life. That's not a scare tactic. Do you think Ananias, as he walked into that room, feeling all satisfied and all smug, look at us, we're going to pull one over on the church, and, and you know we don't feel bad about this, because this is a huge gift. They should be thrilled that we're giving to the church like that. They should be so, you know what? We, we have every right to do this. And he walks in with a little smirk on his face, trying to hide it, knowing that he's trying to pull one over on the Lord. And, and he walks in. Do you think as he's walking into that assembly and as he's laying that at the apostles' feet, that he's thinking, in five minutes I'm going to be dead? There was no time to process. There was no time to bargain. His time was up. Same thing happens with Sapphira. Peter questions her. She lies again, says it's the full amount, and she dies on the spot. Why? Why did God respond that way? Look at the text. It says they had conceived this lie. And in verse 9, it says that they had put the Spirit of the Lord to the test. I looked up the phrase in the Greek. It literally means to challenge whether God would really judge them. What a phrase. Ananias and Sapphira, you challenged the Lord. You said, will God really judge us? Is God really serious about sin? And you birthed this plan, and you knew what you were doing, and you decided to push the Lord and see whether He really is who He was, whether He'll really act as God, or whether He's going to let it slide. Listen, if you have any doubt about how God feels about sin, just read Acts 5. I think we've gotten to the belief, especially in our country, that God, when we sin, even as believers, just kind of looks sideways and goes, look at them, boy, they're such scamps. What am I going to do with them? Well, okay, I'll give them a little discipline, maybe a little trial, but they'll be fine. They're, they're good. They'll get it eventually. God hates sin. He's holy. He doesn't want to tolerate it for a minute. And he will not be tested, and he will not be mocked. Now, you say, wow, Paul, it's a week before Thanksgiving. That's really heavy. And it is. This is a sobering text. But I want you to see, let's end on a positive note. Even in people's sin, God uses it to bring honor to, our, to himself. And he uses it to stir our hearts and to teach us truth. Look at verse 5. As he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. 
and great fear came over all who heard of it. Drop down to verse 10. Immediately Sapphira fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came and found her dead and carried her out and buried her. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. Twice in the text, the Spirit says that great fear came on the church. Now I don't believe that was just because Ananias and Sapphira had been so severely punished. I believe the fear here is a reawakening as if the church needed it, but apparently they did, that the Lord is holy and that this body and this ministry, listen now, that we've been called to is absolutely serious. The early church, this church, the American church, the Christian church worldwide is not some social club And it's not some place where anything goes. But that's always a risk to our thinking, especially in an area where things are so convoluted in our culture and where church has been so changed and reevaluated and where the picture of the church in Acts 2 and Acts 3 and Acts 4 has been marginalized and redefined because we feel some sort of perverse need to update Scripture. Listen, even... With all that had happened, the conversions and the miracles and the wonders and the incredible demonstration of the Spirit's power and the overwhelming greatness of God's work in the church so far and the widespread influence, even with all of that, they could have taken it for granted or say, isn't it cool that we're part of this new phenomenon that's taking place and look at us, we are at the front of it. That's not what was going on. This was the holy work of God. And believer, I want to encourage you this morning, never forget that about the church and never forget that about this church. As we come up to one year of ministry, remember that the Lord established Harbor Rock Tabernacle and from day one, even before day one, when we were in that upper room and we were praying and we were sensing what God was doing, We knew that He has called us to something significant. He has called us to be holy and set apart from the world and to be trained and encouraged so we can take the gospel to southeast Wisconsin, to the United States, to the uttermost parts of the world so that, God willing, we would have the same kind of impact that the early church had. But for that to happen, we have to remember that the calling is serious. And that the opposition will be fierce. And that the stakes are literally the souls of men and women. And as we do that, our defense of the body is serious. When Ananias and Sapphira's sin is exposed, instantly, look at it in the text, verses 4, 5, 9, and 10. Instantly, they develop a great fear that what had been so wonderful for four chapters is now possibly going to be corrupted by selfishness and sin. I I tried this week to really imagine, I'm going to ask you to do it too, try to really imagine now, I mean, come on, in your heart, what it must have been like in those early days. Pentecost, the manifestation of God's power, speaking in other languages, the shaking of the room, the power of the prayer, 
Peter's sermon, people getting saved by the thousands, the opposition, the healing, the strength, the backing down of the enemies, more people getting saved, the church growing every day, unbridled selfishness, sharing, the weakening position of the enemies, the new influence to others, the giving, the sacrifice. Oh, it must have been amazing. And all of a sudden, everything that they had experienced that was great, now they experience something that's not so great. And I have to believe that their posture against that was absolutely not. We are not going to allow it. We're not going to stand for it. God has been working, and he has given our ministry an advance. And if he's going to deal with the sin like that, then we better be aware that when we sin, sin like that, we're going to deal with it that way too. Not in terms of killing people, but in terms of the seriousness of defending against it. Why is the church of Jesus Christ weakened so much? It's because we've stopped saying we're not going to tolerate that. Because everybody says the church is intolerant. And the church needs to be more open. And we need to just accept everything. False theology? Listen, you need to be open to that. People who are deviant and, and, and unashamed of it? Just, 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 that's fine. We need to be more understanding. Yes, we do need to be more understanding. Yes, we need to be gracious. Yes, we need to minister to every single person who has a need. Yes, we need to welcome people who are unsaved and hurting and, and lost and in crisis. We need to be a spiritual ER and say, yes, you come into this place and you find out about the grace of God. But we will not, unashamedly, we will not back down on what we believe. And we will not take the Bible and say, well, we'll just pick and choose what sounds good so nobody's offended. The gospel is an offense to some. That's not my words. That's God's words. It doesn't mean we're mean. doesn't mean we're intolerant. doesn't mean we're critical or insulated or that we're judgmental. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying that when we see the fruits of sin being bred in the body, we need to say, uh-uh. It didn't escape their notice that God swiftly and strongly said, nope, not in my church. We're not going to allow it. And the church, and I'm done, developed two kinds of fear. Look at it, verses 5 and 11. They feared, they were in awe of the Lord and His power and His discipline. And they feared and were concerned that this might be the beginning of of the pollution of self that they knew would impact the church and damage the church if it was allowed. Listen, you and I this morning, we need to be that defensive of the body of Christ. Not just here at Harbor Rock. We need to be that defensive of any church that loves the Lord and preaches the gospel. We need to be upset about the pluralism of theology. We need to be upset when pastors are changing the gospel. We should argue against the teaching of easy believism that I listened to on my TV this morning, that you just believe what's great and everything will be perfect. That's easy believism, and it's not in Scripture. 
We need to emphasize the God wor- God's word, and we need to argue against somebody that tries to diminish its authority. We need to be concerned that secularization is not only increasingly be allowed by Christians, listen now, but it's being promoted as a way to be relevant. Instead of hearing what Scripture says, that we are to die to self daily and be set apart and live as a disciple of Jesus Christ. If you think that word is too hard, you're right, it is. Jesus even said it's too hard. We need to be disturbed within Christianity by the lack of emphasis on prayer and the lack of teaching on the Holy Spirit, especially as it's replaced by strategy and cleverness and developing a new paradigm of ministry. Listen, Acts 2 is just fine. Thank you very much. We should be bothered by gossip and criticism and resentment among the family of God. We should be annoyed by jealousy and competition. We should be uh, uh, concerned by disingenuous spirituality that's just as dishonest as Ananias and Sapphira. In other words, as we're in awe of the Lord and we're terrified of ever offending Him, we should also be protective of the church of Jesus Christ so that what happens in Acts chapter 5 doesn't continue to happen in the church in 2011. If I have a prayer for this church in the next year, it's that we will have that kind of fear of the Lord and that kind of protectiveness about the body of Christ in this church and in other churches in this area. Because when the smog gets in the air, like it does in Acts 5, and the enemy tries to take what is pure and holy and honoring to God, and he tries to infect it so the body won't be effective and so the gospel won't advance. We have to have those two kinds of fear and say, Lord Jesus, stop that. Holy Spirit, invade this church so that we would be protected against that. And you know what? When we call on the Lord like that, as the apostles will in the next section, when we call on the Lord like that, God will deal with sin in an unmistakable way. And He will awaken us and we'll see the danger and we'll stay focused on our calling and we'll say, God, this is your church. We're your people. This is your ministry. It's your gospel. Those people out there are potentially your children. We're just your servants. So Lord, we're going to fear you. We're going to be protective of our body. And we're going to stay focused on what you've called us to do. Let's close our eyes. Let me ask you this morning. Only you know the answer to this question. Because we all have some kind of facade. We all present ourselves differently than we really are down deep in the privacy of our lives. Only we know, only God knows what's in our hearts. So let me ask you this morning, do you have that fear of the Lord? Are you terrified of offending Him? Not because He's a great ogre, but because you don't want to offend His holiness. You wouldn't want to do anything to, to frustrate His love. I pray that you'll have that fear. I pray I'll have that fear. It's so easy to become casual with the Lord. 
And at the same time, is your heart and mind guarded against compromise? Are you the Barnabas, the son of encouragement, the one whose heart was pure as he brought the gift and gave it? Are you leaning toward Ananias and Sapphira? Just being edgy with the Lord. Just not quite, not quite being honest. Listen, I know this is a hard word this morning. It wasn't that fun to preach. But we have to be honest. We have to have integrity with the Lord. He loves us so much. His sacrifice is obvious. Just look at the cross and you'll know what He's done. He wants us to be pure and holy as He says He will make us when we give our lives fully to Him. So I don't know where you are with the Lord this morning. But any impurity, anything that's holding back, any dishonesty, I, I, I want to encourage you right now just to confess that to the Lord. Ask Him to purify and cleanse you. Father, we're thankful that when we confess our sins, You're faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from every evidence of unrighteousness. I honestly can't imagine why You'd want to do that, but we know why You do it. You do it because You love us. And you do it because you're merciful. Father, as your, as your children this morning, we pray that you'd keep our hearts pure, that you'd keep us free of this spiritual infection that pride brings, that you'd diminish the influence of the enemy and weaken his grip, that you'd protect this church, Lord, as we come up on one year. You've been so, so faithful, we can't even imagine. Protect us, Lord, so that we would have strength to do the work of ministry that you've called us to. Lord, our hearts are yours. We praise you that you watch over us, you indwell us, you fill us, you secure us, you walk with us. You never take your eyes off of us. Find us faithful, Lord, we pray. We love you and we praise you. And it's because of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. This is-